It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. The coronavirus crisis is testing America's strength in neighborhoods, cities, and in Washington, D.C. What lessons can we learn from great leaders of the past? In his presidency, Abraham Lincoln also faced crises, the deadly civil war, slavery, and the preservation of democracy. One of his strengths was his use of language, says Harvard professor John Stauffer. He understood that in a democracy, words are paramount. A democracy thrives by influencing people through rhetoric. You don't do it by force, you change mind. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion was held by the Aspen Institute Socrates program. Abraham Lincoln had virtually no formal education and little experience in national politics when he took office in 1861. The politician from Illinois became commander-in-chief when states were seceding and the nation was on the brink of war. How did he tackle the immense problems at his doorstep? And how might today's leaders consider Lincoln's leadership? John Stauffer sits down with Colleen Shogun to reflect on America's 16th president. Stauffer is a noted expert of Abraham Lincoln. His writing has appeared in Time, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times. Shogun directs the David Rubenstein Center for White House History at the White House Historical Association. She also teaches at Georgetown. She kicks off the discussion. But I'm going to turn this over to John because I thought you might have some opening thoughts or an opening statement you'd like to start us off with about Lincoln. So Lincoln, I think, is uh, the nation's greatest president in part uh, because of what he did and what he said. He spearheaded the uh, effort and accomplished a preservation of the Union and not just the Union of American democracy and the idea of democracy. At the time, democracy was seen as a very fragile form of government. Most European nations thought that a benevolent uh, monarchy was the most effective form of government. And uh, Lincoln and many others recognized the fragility of democracy. It requires a sense of humility among uh, the constituents, among the electorate, because it's very easy in a democracy, uh, not to want to accept the will of the majority. Democracy is about the will of the majority. Uh, And if one repudiates that and decides to walk out, it's the end of all democracy. Uh, And so his, he recognized the uh, profound uh, crisis in disunion, not just in terms of slavery, but in the very idea of democracy. And as He quoted uh, from the Gettysburg Address the idea that all people are created equal. So, John, when Lincoln began his presidency, he really got no time before crisis confronted him. I mean, he didn't have one year. He didn't have one month. He didn't even have one day before Fort Sumter, uh, the decision about Sumter was upon him. So can you talk a little bit about how Lincoln approached this crisis in leadership before he even had a chance to get used to the fact that he was president of the United States. That's right. He had to, to really make one of the most crucial decisions he ever made as president. Yes. I mean, when he, when he took the oath of office, seven states had already seceded, the Confederacy had already been formed, 
and the Upper South was threatening to secede. It was a profound crisis, and he had very little experience. He had served one term uh, as a, in the House of Representatives. Uh, most, the vast majority of his career had been uh, in uh, Illinois. He wasn't even a nationally known figure until the late 1850s. And uh, after delivering his inaugural address, he goes to the White House, and one of the many pieces of uh, papers that are on his desk is a crisis at Fort Sumner because Robert Anderson, the commander of Fort Sumner, sent him a message saying in a, couple, in a week or two, we're gonna be out of supplies, uh, we need help. And so Lincoln has a profound dilemma on his hands. What, what should he do? On the one hand, he could send in arms as well as food and supplies and if he does, then he will be charged with starting a war. Uh, and, and on the other hand, he could give up Fort Sumner. It's a federal fort in a state that has seceded. Uh, and if he does that, he'll be seen as being weak, as capitulating to South Carolina, almost legitimating uh, this uh, new uh nation. And in fact, Lincoln never used the term the Confederacy. He did not dignify this new nation by that term. He always referred to it as a rebellion. Uh, they were rebels and it was a rebellion. The third option that he had at Fort Sumner is to send in just supplies, just food for the troops, for Union troops at station at Fort Sumner and then send a memo to the governor of South Carolina and Jefferson Davis, the president of the so-called Confederacy, giving them a heads up of what he's going to do. And if the rebels fire on Fort Sumner, then they are the ones charged with starting the war. And that's the decision he made, and it was a brilliant decision uh, because it was important to him that uh, he was that the union or he was not going to be responsible for starting a war, and uh, it was one of many of his very wise moves, I think. Then Lincoln finds himself to be commander in chief, uh, and uh, a civil war has has begun, but he has very limited military experience. Right. So how does he approach this role of? as commander-in-chief when he has very little uh, military background uh, with which to communicate with his generals in order to engage with them? And how does that change over time? Because the Lincoln we see in the beginning of his presidency isn't the same Lincoln we see later in his presidency. Yes, yes. So it was the, the first major battle, the uh, first battle of Bull Run was a, a disaster. He learned, in a sense, from that. He uh, began uh, talking to his generals on a very regular basis and wanting to know what they were planning and felt that he should uh, offer some advice based on his, uh, his own understanding. Lincoln was, uh, was a, he had virtually no formal education, but he was a great analyst. He loved to analyze things. And he loved dilemmas or puzzles or problems and trying to figure out ways to solve them. And so one of the things that he learned from uh, the first battle of Bull Run, which is a disaster, is to start communicating very regularly and knowing in every 
exactly what they were planning and what they were doing. And so he took his role as not just president, but the commander in chief of the military quite seriously. And he ended up forging a very close relationship with Grant, for example, uh, to a secondary degree with uh, Sherman. George McClellan had, he had a, a bad relationship with him, in part because McClellan did not want to communicate uh, with Lincoln. McClellan also was very hesitant about fighting. He ended up becoming a, a copperhead Democrat, which was uh, essentially an enemy of the North, sympathetic to uh, the rebels. In fact, Copperheads received funding from rebels. McClellan ended up running against Lincoln in 1864 and probably would have won the 1864 election had Sherman not taken Atlanta. One of the other uh, key components is the element of trust. Yes. Lincoln comes to trust the members, particularly of his cabinet, particularly that inner cabinet, the, the four men that surrounded him. Yes. Why is trust so important and why is it so important in his leadership and his decisions? Because it showed, well, for a number of reasons. One, in trusting uh, his cabinet or in trusting uh, other um, politicians, and uh, it shows a degree of respect for them in that you trust them uh, and that you will listen to them. Lincoln was a great listener. Um, and he, want, he listened to everyone. He listened to his secretaries. He listened to his generals. He listened to his cabinet. That doesn't mean he uh, agreed with everything they said or did everything they wanted him to do, but he showed this profound, uh, you're right, this sense of trust, which showed a degree of respect. He ended up um, making his own decisions. He had enough faith in his own analytical capacities that he ultimately made his own decision. So a number of cabinet members uh, turned out to be not very effective. Uh, the Secretary of War uh, was essentially con uh, charged with uh, corruption and left after roughly a year. Uh, the uh, Simon Cameron, he was uh, he left after years. Uh, Sam and Chase, uh, Secretary of the Treasury, I mean, Chase runs against him in 64 when everyone thinks he's going to lose. Edward Bates uh, complained about Lincoln's incompetence handling the cabinet. Uh, and um, the so-called incompetence was Lincoln listening to everyone but making his own decisions rather than um, simply blindly heeding the advice of cabinet members. Uh, and so he used, I think, the cabinet wisely, but recognized that ultimately as the president, as commander in chief, the cabinet was, were advisors. It didn't mean that he needed to heed what they did. Uh, and, and showing them trust also reflected that even though I might disagree with you and I might not heed your advice, it doesn't mean that I don't respect you. It doesn't mean that I don't think you're a worthy politician, that you're, uh, that you are, uh, you're not deserving of this position. Uh, and so he, uh, he had, especially uh, over the course of the war, gained greater and greater respect from not just cabinet members from people who differed from him in many ways because he showed the respect and at times he was able to, he would he heeded their advice at other times he didn't 
So the converse of this is something that historians, some historians have criticized Lincoln for. Some have said that Lincoln was loyal to a fault, particularly not so much with the cabinet members, but with his early generals, some of his early military leaders, that he kind of hung on a little bit long. He tolerated them for, for uh, too long before he eventually settles on Grant. So can you talk about that? Is the converse uh, of, of trust you know, a, uh, a tendency towards loyalty sometimes when it even damaged his decisions? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and there's, there's no great answer. I mean, McClellan, he, you know, a lot of scholars say he let McClellan remain as general far longer than he should have. Uh, but by showing a, a, a trust in his generals, in his cabinet, uh, in his staff, uh, it sent a message of trust. And the, the counter example would be had he started firing generals very quickly, then the military would suddenly become suspicious and would lose faith in him. And it's crucial in uh, especially a democracy and in the United States in which there is a a, uh, a intricate relationship between the president and the military uh, that there is this sense of trust even though there might be disagreement and uh, it's one of the reasons why it was important for lincoln to remain in very close communication uh, with his generals uh, and uh, which he did throughout the war so it's it's hard to know if lincoln uh, gave them to someone like McClellan too much trust. I mean, soldiers themselves loved McClellan because McClellan was, uh, he wanted more men, he wanted more troops. Uh, if you were a soldier at McClellan, you had a far greater chance of surviving than if you were a soldier with Grant. If you're a common soldier with Grant, many soldiers hated Grant because Grant is much more aggressive. Grant's willing to take big chances and lose a lot of men. And so the common soldiers were hugely supportive of McClellan. Um, a lot of them hated Grant, uh, and yet Grant was far greater general than McClellan was. And so there are a number of issues that Lincoln has to grapple with. And uh, he also had, and I think I mentioned it at the outset, there was this part of the degree to which he showed a respect to uh, not just generals and the staff, but essentially all people. Lincoln met with more African-Americans at the White House as citizens, essentially, than all previous presidents combined. And virtually every single African-American he met with publicly said that they treated him as an equal. He treated them as an equal. He treated them as a citizen, as an American. Uh, and uh, that's, a, that's hugely significant at the time. Uh, so uh, I, I'm much more sympathetic to the degree of trust and the degree of respect that he showed everyone. Uh, and that matters, especially for a democratic leader. Now, another issue he grappled with, of course, which is very relevant to today's crisis, is uh, the balance between the preservation of the union and the good of the whole and right. the preservation of civil liberties. Yes. And Lincoln decides at a certain point that he's facing insurrection in Maryland. Maryland is very dangerous because it's so close to the nation's capital. Yes. 
and he decides in this this railroad corridor from Philadelphia to DC that he's going to suspend the writ of habeas corpus, yes. uh, the 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 right to a a, a um, to uh, jurisdiction after you've been detained uh, right. to due process. He's going to suspend that, and this becomes one of the most controversial decisions, certainly of his presidency. So, how does he think about this this balance between? We know his ultimate end goal is preservation of the union. He makes that clear, right. but he also realizes he cannot eradicate civil liberties because it's the type of union that's worth preserving ultimately in the end. Right. So he he does so he um, suspends uh, habeas corpus be, uh, essentially because he recognizes uh, Marylanders who uh, who want to secede or are trying to secede, and if Maryland first off Maryland secedes, it's essentially a rebel victory. Uh, Washington D.C. and the White House is surrounded. Uh, later in the war, Indiana tries to secede, and he does the same thing. He and in virtually every case where he suspends habeas corpus, it's because of Northerners or people in the Union who are sympathetic to the rebellion. And uh, he sees them as, uh, as, as essentially traitors because in his view, uh, secession, the idea of secession is the essence, it's the very essence of anarchy or despotism uh, because it, it reflects the refusal to accept a majority rule. I mean, a day after Lincoln is elected, South Carolina announces its secession convention. So the Southern states, many of the Southern states had made it very clear, even when, uh, when the Republican Party was founded, that if a Republican is elected president, we're leaving. Uh, they had, Southerners had threatened to leave in 1850. They had a secession convention in 1850 and nothing happened. And Lincoln continually emphasized, if we, if we legitimate, if we allow secession, not just American democracy, but all democracies are dead in the water. Uh, and so it, it also reflects this arrogance among uh, people who say, well, uh, the majority is wrong, I'm right, and so I'm going to leave. And so his suspension of habeas corpus was in order to protect the union and he felt these these people are traitors they're rebels they are taking up arms against the government they are they have no they do not deserve the habeas corpus uh in order to protect the union i think that was an appropriate move and so do uh, numerous uh, constitutional and legal scholars. And in fact, in every war, in the Revolutionary War, in every single war, that's a major dilemma. Do you, in, what, in what circumstances do you suspend habeas corpus? And if, it's, uh, you, if you deny the dissemination of a voice among a traitor, is that legitimate? Based on the history of the United States, that has been legitimate. Uh, and we, you see that in the 20th century. In World War II, uh, uh, the, the military, the relationship between the military and the State Department is such that there was a, an entire organization whose job was, whose role was to uh, monitor every image and press release about the war so as to not lose the support of the home front. And especially in a democracy, if the home front is opposed to the war, it's gonna be hard to win the war. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, Lincoln recognized that. Lincoln recognized that if he doesn't have the support of the home front, of his uh, constituents, uh, there's no way he's going to win the war. Let's go back to someone you mentioned earlier. You mentioned Grant before when we were talking about some of um, the military components of the Civil War. Uh, I reread this, uh, the instance in which Grant and Lincoln first met uh, yesterday. Uh, apparently it was March of 1864. Of course, Lincoln had known about Grant previously and been following his career, but hadn't actually met Grant. And then Grant is going to assume um, uh, the generalship and assume uh, command of the Union forces. He comes to Washington, D.C. He comes to the White House and he walks into, I think at that point in time, called the Oval Room, but now it's called the Blue Room. And as he walk, and Lincoln's standing at the far side of the, of the Oval Room, and as Grant walks in, the entire the crowd, the the small group of of people who were there, the crowd grows silent because everybody knows this is a momentous occasion in which Lincoln and Grant will have first laid eyes on each other. Can you talk a little bit about their partnership? Why uh, why was it so fruitful? Why did they? Why was is this truly one of the great partnerships in leadership you can find uh, in American history? They were very different, but they had immense respect for each other. And Grant actually appreciated Lincoln's uh, immense and detailed interest and conversation with him. I mean, when uh, Grant was um, staging a siege at Vicksburg, which was a brilliant victory because uh, when he is able to, when on July 4th of 63, when he takes Vicksburg, uh, he cuts the Mississippi River in two, and it thus cuts the Confederacy in, in, in two. It's arguably a much more a more significant victory than Gettysburg because of that. And uh, Lincoln was making suggestions to Grant, uh, very detailed, strategic suggestions, because Lincoln felt he knew the Mississippi River because of where he'd grown up. He had taken riverboat rides or and uh or down the mississippi to new orleans twice as a young man and grant respected uh these suggestions he liked the fact that lincoln was as as, as involved as he was and the two men were completely different uh but there was this degree of trust and degree of respect even when they disagreed with each other uh, and they recognized, they treated each other in essence as equals. And they understand, they understood that each, that the other, that Grant understood the, the importance of Lincoln to his ability to win uh, battles. And Lincoln recognized the crucial importance of Grant and his ability to preserve the union and to preserve the idea of democracy. So, John, I want to ask you about um, about Lincoln's rhetoric. Um, uh, it's definitely, as we look back on it, we view Lincoln's rhetorical leadership as one of the most important facets of his presidential leadership, of his executive leadership. Why were his words so important? And can you give us some examples uh, of Lincoln's words that really, when you read them today, for the current crisis that we're in right now in the United States and in the world, they still have relevance. Yes, they have immense relevance. I think Lincoln is, as a, as a writer and speaker, the greatest uh, 
president as a writer and speaker. And he understood that in a democracy, words are paramount. Um, a democracy thrives by influencing people through rhetoric. Uh, you don't do it by force. You change minds. You awaken people uh, to uh, ideas that help to promote democracy. And uh, you don't do it, as I said, by force. Lincoln recognized that. And Lincoln, uh, in, his, the, in the moments where he, was, uh, where he needed uh, a major shift, he rose to the occasion. His first inaugural, for example, I think is a brilliant inaugural address, uh, where one of the themes is the importance of preserving just the idea of democracy. And uh, that the walking out because you lose an election, uh, that kind of arrogance will destroy all democracy. Uh, and he also, a lot of scholars, and I completely agree, have uh, pointed out Lincoln had a great sense of public opinion. He was, as a politician in Illinois, he was, an, to say he was an avid reader of, the, of newspapers and of the press, is an understatement. He read all the press. He had a, a, a brilliant pulse on public opinion and a, a great sense of public opinion and, a, and an understanding of what he needed to do to kind of shift public opinion to a direction that um, his constituents would accept. I mean, the, the great example is on turning the war which it, it, as a war to preserve the Union, which is what he took his oath of office to do to preserve the Union into an emancipation war. And he did so by, by essentially sending the message that a war to preserve the Union and a war to emancipate slaves was, you can't, they're not two distinct goals. In order to achieve one, you have to achieve the other. They are the same goal because the 95% of African-Americans were in the, the South. They were an enemy of the rebellion. Uh, they were the friends, they were allies of the Union. Use them and we can win the war. And he said that outright in uh, 60, late 63 and in 64, that uh, after he started arming blacks and after 180,000 were armed, he said, you know, with them we can win, without them we will lose. Uh, and so a, a war to a preserving the Union meant emancipating and arming. And at that time, arming blacks symbolized citizenship. It was before the 14th Amendment. One of a, a virtually unquestioned understanding of whether or not you're a citizen is if you served in the United States military. Um, another example, which is the, the two pieces of Lincoln that I uh, have available for people is the, are the Gettysburg Address and the Second Inaugural. I think they're two of the greatest presidential uh, uh, works of rhetoric uh, in American history. And the Gettysburg Address is at a time in which the, uh, the death toll, the death toll is extraordinary. More Americans died than, you have to go back in terms of, uh, you have to go back to the classical antiquity in terms of proportions of people who died. It was just everyone had a family member, a close friend, who was a casualty in the war. The dedication of the cemetery at Gettysburg, um, he first, he highlights the degree, it's not just about the United States, it's about the idea of democracy. And he begins, he frames it by starting with the Bible, four score and seven years ago. 
it could have said, you know, 87 years ago, but the four score and is from it, everyone at the time recognized it's from the King James Bible. So it's bigger than the United States. Our fathers brought forth upon this continent. He's referring back to the declaration, a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. At that time, most people understood all men as being all humans are created equal. The idea of a democracy. And then he emphasizes that further. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation, not just the United States, or, but any nation so conceived and so dedicated, any democracy, this is a war that tests whether or not democracy in general can endure. Because it's really easy if you lose an election to say, I'm out. And so then he goes on to say, we're met on a great battlefield. We have come to dedicate a portion of it as a final resting place for those who died here, that the nation might live. And one of his messages is that the idea of democracy, a democratic form of government, is so sacred that it's worth dying for. Not just the United States, but if you die for in the cause of preserving the union and preserving this nation, you are dying for the cause of the idea of democracy at a time in which most European nations thought it was uh, fragile and wouldn't last. Um, in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have hallowed it. Again, the biblical language, consecrate. I mean, this is as much a sermon about democracy as it is a speech to rally uh, the North. Uh, we, uh, uh, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here. He was wrong on that, of course. <laughs> well, it can never forget what they did there. They sacrificed their lives, not just for the United States, but for the idea of democracy. And then the rest of the this, this speech is, first of all, it's hugely, uh, it's hugely um, risky because he says it is essentially saying it's for us, the living, to be willing to sacrifice our lives as well, despite the huge death toll. It is rather for us, the living, we here be dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they here gave the last full measure of devotion, the idea of democracy. That we here highly resolve these dead shall not have died in vain. And then he summarizes by describing what is a democracy, that the nation will have a new birth of freedom and that not just and that this government but that government in general that government of the people by the people for the people shall not perish from the earth it's a sermon on the crucial importance of democracy
It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. In the COVID-19 crisis, there's a severe shortage of PPE or personal protective equipment like masks and gloves for healthcare workers. Esther Chu is an emergency room physician and healthcare activist. She says it became clear in February that PPE was running out around the world. Since then, health workers are being forced to make do. We were needing to stretch out the PPE we, we had, um, doing conservation things that we, I'd never even considered or heard of, like wearing these masks, which are all meant to be single-use items. We were being asked to wear them for multiple patients or even for multiple shifts in a row. People were using masks until the straps broke off and then were, were stapling them back on. How are entrepreneurs stepping up with solutions to put masks and protective equipment in the hands of health workers? Watch Chu and other entrepreneurs in the Aspen Health for All Activate series. Find it on the Aspen Institute's website and in our show notes. The series is presented by the Aspen Global Innovators Group at the Aspen Institute. Let's get back to today's feature discussion. Here's Colleen Shogan. John, uh, I think we have the text from the second inaugural as yeah. well. Some people view this, many historians view this as, as Lincoln's greatest yes. rhetorical yes. effort. Yes. For me, I, I find it to be particularly moving because we see two qualities of Lincoln th- th- throughout his presidency, but they really uh, become come to the forefront in this speech, and that's his humility Mm-hmm. and also his empathy. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I go back and forth between Gettysburg and Second Inaugural. <laughs> but certainly as an inaugural address, the Second Inaugural is by far, it's, I mean, it, it, uh, it flies above every other. Uh, and there are some uh, many other good ones. Uh, and yeah, and he highlights here even more than in the Gettysburg Address, his sense of humility. One is in his humility about his relationship with God. Scholars have debated on Lincoln's religiosity, but he says early on in the early part of the second inaugural, he said both sides believed that God was on its side. So both sides, most Americans at the time believed they knew God's will. And he, Lincoln is in a sense, does not want, for Lincoln, that's hubris. To presume to know God's will is hubris. It's a kind of arrogance. In this sense, he's what a number of scholars, myself included, have referred to as a kind of Calvinist. In a Calvinist uh, theology, God is inscrutable. Um, It's hubris. It's uh, presumptuous to pretend to know God's will. The closest that you can come is to look for signs of his will. Uh, and so hence he says, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue, I, I don't know whether it's continue. If God wills it continue. And again, he's, he's subtly very clear about not demonizing the South, but acknowledging that this is a war. Uh, it was waged by rebels who wanted to perpetuate and grow uh, slavery. If God wills, wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with a lash shall be paid by another drawn with a sword, 
as was said 3,000 years ago, again, referring back to scripture, Exodus, really. So still must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. He's borrowing from scripture. But then he, he pivots with malice toward none, with charity for all. And as, as if to prevent rebels from saying, okay, we're going to be let back into the union and there's going to be no punishment or not at all, or we'll, we can continue to fight. He says, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Again, he's not certain that he knows God's will. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. It's an extraordinary um, plea for ending the war, not for abandoning the ideals in which it was, on which it was based. Uh, and again, it's a, uh, as much of a sermon as it is a political address. Okay, so we're going to go to one of our first questions. She asked, this may be a little bit outside of the current discussion, but I'm seeing many pro-libertarian and anti-social distancing orders. Um, talking heads use many Lincoln or American history quotations like, those who give up liberty for safety deserve neither. Can you shed some light on how these constitutional issues and perhaps misinterpretations of Lincoln are shaping our current political times and how Lincoln might respond to these calls for personal liberty over communal safety? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, Lincoln, for many Americans, uh, have, has become, in a sense, um, America's Christ. In fact, there's there's a, a saying for many people, what would Lincoln do? Which is, for many evangelical Christians, what would Jesus do? Uh, and Lincoln would have been horrified at that. Um, he was a student of history as much as he was a politician. And so he would have emphasized, we have to, you have to understand me and the at the time in which I lived and the, the dilemmas that I faced uh, and the world is very different today. Um, and so to, uh, you know, to use me as a way, as a justification for what you want to accomplish also denies the kind of analytical approach you would take to specific, uh, specific circumstances and specific conditions. Um, Lincoln was uh, the, the one uh, kind of uh, large absolute or ideal was his faith in democracy, but in terms of specific decisions he made, it was the context was crucial. It's why he was often seen as a kind of political flip-flopper, you know, saying one thing at one point and then a year later saying something else because things had changed. Um, both as a as a congressman and as president i mean he changed dramatically in fact one of his one of the aspects of his greatness is his capacity to change and he was open about that yeah i contradicted myself based on what i'm saying now what i said last year what i said two years ago 
but that's that should be the case things happen times change what i said two years ago no longer applies I think that's absolutely true. In fact, this past week when I've been spending a little bit more time with Lincoln, that was one of my my big takeaways was, gosh, Lincoln really, I mean, changed amazingly and, really and throughout his career, <laughs> yeah. but really throughout just his presidency. And he wasn't afraid to say that. And he that's wasn't exactly afraid right. to admit it. That's exactly and, right. Um, also, I think sometimes with Lincoln, it's also the ability to turn a negative somehow into a positive. Right. That's exactly he has all these political enemies out there, right? I mean, he's no way the most prominent Republican, no way the most popular Republican, but somehow he's able to take his rivals and, and make them um, not necessarily his friends, but, but elicit the best qualities from, from That's them. Right. That's right. That make them useful to Lincoln, right? And, and to the union cause. That's right. And it's one of the reasons why he showed this sense of respect and trust. Um, that sent a message that it, it helped them rise to their best. Right. Now, that's a that's a wonderful point. Okay, so we have a, a question, and she's pushing back a little bit on um, habeas corpus. She says, um, "How can it ever be okay to not respect habeas corpus? Looking back, maybe it was the right decision, but it could have also been wrong, and it was a huge violation of human or individual rights." It seems a little bit like gambling to me. If the same decision were taken today, we wouldn't know how it would turn out. And playing with human or individual rights for a possible win and a so-called greater goal doesn't seem like a convincing leader to me. How did Lincoln convince others? How did he sell that decision to anyone? So virtually every instance of uh, Lincoln suspending habeas corpus was suspending habeas corpus um, of uh, either uh, open secessionists or copperheads. And as I said, the copperhead Democrats uh, received support and aid from the Confederacy. The most notable example is John Wilkes Booth. He and his conspirators received funding from the Confederacy. Uh, and uh, initially Booth's plan was to kidnap Lincoln and use him as ransom to forced the release of all Confederate prisoners of war in the hopes of revitalizing the war. Uh, and so in Indiana, in um, Pennsylvania, in parts there, the, the Copperhead threat was a severe threat, and they were open about their uh, sympathy for uh, the Confederacy. And in fact, there, there were two types of Copperheads. Uh, copperheads who wanted the nation, wanted the the war to end and the uh, the the confederacy of the rebels rebels to return to the union as it was with slavery intact um the more threatening copperheads was essentially to let the uh, confederate states of america remain a separate slave owning nation which is essentially a victory for the confederacy that's what they were fighting for is to be a separate slave owning nation um, every single copperhead was a virulent racist so repudiating for a large percentage of uh, of uh, the population, the very idea of democracy. Uh, and meanwhile, over the course of the war, more and more whites recognized the crucial support of African Americans in the war effort in order to preserve the Union. Um, and Lincoln made that clear, so did Grant. So most of, especially the generals, made that clear. So to um, say that, uh, that it's contradictory or contradicts the idea of human rights, that that all of the instances of Lincoln, virtually all of the instances of Lincoln uh, suspending habeas corpus were uh, among those either 
explicit uh, Confederates or sympathetic to the rebellion. And the rebellion was waged as a way to preserve, and not just preserve, but to propagate and expand slavery. Um, that, they were very open with that. And their understanding that uh, whites were uh, superior to blacks um, without question. Uh, and the slavery was the natural condition for African-Americans. Um, and uh, so Lincoln recognized, as well as other anti-slavery and abolitionist northerners, that that was a fundamental contradiction of democracy. The next question is, how did Lincoln manage and accept his failures? How did this, lead, this affect the way he led? That's a great question. I think he, uh, he, one, was humble enough to recognize failure. And a lot of politicians then and now had a hard time accepting uh, that they failed at something. And two, really learning from it, uh, really interrogating, you know, what could I have done differently? Um, I recognize I made a mistake and what could, uh, what could have been, uh, what could have resulted in a better outcome. Uh, and that reflects his, I think, d degree of humility, both among himself and uh, he would, he would uh, whether as cabinet members or other aides, would also, uh, was willing to criticize them or say, I think this was a wrong move and here's why. He'd often use humor. I mean, uh, not that much, but a, a fair amount has been uh, increasingly more. It's been written about Lincoln's use of humor. And part of the brilliance of his humor was to make some of his criticisms um, uh, 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 palatable or acceptable. Um, he, would, uh, he would disarm people with his humor. And that would allow them to engage in a frank and open and honest conversation. Uh, another question. Uh, the repeated message here seems to be that any separatist movement in a democracy is illegitimate. Does this apply to something like Catalonia, Quebec, Scotland, where there are genuine cultural language or other differences today? So, no, it doesn't. That's a great question. Yeah. It, it doesn't apply to... Um, uh, all democracy. I mean, for Lincoln, it applied to the United States based on uh, the founding of uh, the United States and based on the nature of the Constitution uh, and the Articles of Confederation. And along, I mean, Lincoln was a, prided himself on being a, uh, a lawyer and uh, a, 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 a devoted as a lawyer, completely devoted to the rule of precedent um, and relying on previous laws as a basis for creating new laws. Uh, and in, from the Articles of Confederation through the, uh, uh, through the Constitution and through a number of uh, court cases, uh, Lincoln made, that's how and why Lincoln came to make the claim that uh, Secession is the essence of anarchy, um, but he framed it in terms of specifically in a legal and constitutional sense in terms of the United States. The example of Scotland, especially, uh, I mean, especially when Lincoln lived at that time, uh, England was not a was not a democracy. It was a kind of enlightened uh, monarchy. 
uh, but it, the form of government was fundamentally different. It still is. The uh, it's. I mean, it's it's technically. Uh, well, many people refer to it as a democracy, but it's a very different form of government um, than the United States is. So uh, Lincoln would not have applied it to every democracy on earth. He was, um, and at the time, it's a very good question because at the time, the United States was the one notable democratic nation that was trying to survive. There, there were the revolutions of 1848, which Lincoln is very familiar with, where it's an attempt to create new democratic societies in Europe. And almost all of them failed. Almost all of them failed, in part because, um, one, the numbers were not high, and because of, it goes back to um, Edward Gibbons, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire was a best-selling work of history, and it, uh, most arguably Europeans uh, concluded from Gibbons and others' work, that the examples of democracy that we have are ancient Greece and Rome, and look what happened to them. It was a mess. They, they didn't last. They and it it resulted in uh, it resulted in chaos. Uh, democracies can't survive. They're um, unsustainable. They're fragile, uh, and uh, so hence the rise of uh, these enlightened monarchies. Um, and even France that creates a uh, initially dem a democracy in Europe goes back and forth between democracy and a um, monarchy. So at that time, Lincoln recognized that the, the, the United States was a beacon, uh, which made it even more precious to try to preserve because he believed in democracy, but didn't mean that um, what happened in the United States should necessarily be the case for every democracy. It should be based on legal precedent. He was very much a creature of law, and you see that throughout his career. Um, it's one of the reasons why he was, he never called himself an abolitionist mm -hmm. because of the laws protecting slavery in the states where they existed. The last question we have, uh, I think you'll like this one, John. Has history understated the influence of Frederick Douglass on the Lincoln presidency? Yes, I think it has. In fact, I wrote a book on Douglass and Lincoln as a way to try to rectify that. I mean, Douglass met with Lincoln three times in the White House. Uh, they publicly declared themselves friends uh, after each meeting. Uh, and in fact, friendship at, a, at then was a, a concept that had political and cultural resonance in a way that it doesn't today. Friendship has become commodified. There's a breakfast here and good friends. And, uh, at the time, friendship evoked equality. Everyone recognized that. And to go, if the, the origins of the term as a philosophical, political, cultural, uh, significant um, term goes classical antiquity. The, um, the Greeks and the Romans believe that a virtuous Republican society is one in which friendship for friendships flourished. And it connoted equality between two people, as well as a kind of uh, commingling of spirit, what we would now today call a kind of soulmates. So that for Lincoln and Douglas, both to declare each other as a friend at that time had great cultural resonance. Uh, and Douglas advised Lincoln, Lincoln acknowledged, in fact, in the second meeting, Lincoln invited Douglas to the White House and sought his advice. 
And the third meeting, we know this from uh, Douglas's autobiography. We also know from two women who were right there at the White House. Douglas had a first row seat. I did a book on Douglas as the most photographed American in the 19th century. And one of the photographs shows Douglas having a front row seat at the second inaugural. Douglas attends the reception at the White House. And when Lincoln sees him, he's surrounded by a crowd of whites. He raises his long arm and he says, to loudly so that most of the people could hear. He says, here comes my friend, Frederick Douglass. I saw you in the crowd today. What did you think of my address? And Douglas said, and actually said, what do you think of my address? There is no man in these United States whose opinion I value more than yours. And Douglas said, Mr. President, that was a sacred effort. And there were two women who stood right next to him who wrote that in their in their di in their uh, diary. So we know that it just Douglas uh, uh, exaggerating. Um, and uh, the next time that a black man met with, or an African-American met with the U.S. president and advised him on similar terms was when Martin Luther King Jr. met with President Johnson uh, nine times by my count, uh, which highlights the, uh, the uniqueness of Lincoln's uh, willing ability to treat Douglas, and he met with more African American leaders and people in the White House than all previous presidents combined. And virtually everyone said that they treated him as a man or a woman, not as a black man or a woman. Um, so there was this sense of humility and respect for anyone he met with that was significant. And uh, even though he was a for most of his life, he, as I said, he never defined himself as, a, as an abolitionist. He was a colonizationist for most of his life, politically, because he felt that abolition um, contradicted his understanding of the Constitution and of uh, the uh, legal precedent. Um, and yet, uh, when he interacted with uh, African-Americans, uh, they recognized the degree that they treated him as a equal and as a human. And I think it's part of, part of his many virtues. John Stauffer is a professor of English and American literature at Harvard. He has written 19 books, including Giants, The Parallel Lives of Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. Colleen Shogan is vice chair of the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission. Previously, she worked at the Library of Congress. Their conversation was held by the Aspen Institute Socrates Program, a forum for emerging leaders to convene and explore contemporary issues through expert-moderated dialogue. Discover more on our website, aspeninstitute.org. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. Thank you.